0: Welcome to AAUP Presents, a podcast by the American Association of University Professors. I'm your host, Mariah Quinn. I'm joined on the podcast today by Irene Mulvey, a professor of mathematics at Fairfield University and AAUP's current president. Thanks for joining us, Irene. I'm delighted to be here, Mariah. Thank you. We're gonna cover a lot of ground today from academic freedom to the pandemic to plans for a new deal for higher education. Um, Let's start with the COVID-19 pandemic and health and safety. Over the summer, the AUP released a statement supporting, quote, the right of faculty to organize and work through their unions and shared governance bodies to ensure appropriate health and safety measures are enacted. Can you talk about these pandemic related concerns as we continue to face threats
1: from COVID-19? The COVID-19 pandemic, as we head into 2022, it's upended life as we know it. So many deaths and extraordinary difficulties for so many people. In higher education, which is not to dismiss healthcare workers and the often underpaid essential workers, but our focus is on higher ed, health and safety concerns were paramount. And at many institutions, faculty were forced back to in-person teaching because budgetary concerns were prioritized over health and safety. And many campuses, faculty in crowded classrooms on the front line had to fight for even the most basic safety protocols. I simply don't understand how requirements for face coverings with a highly contagious and deadly virus can be controversial. Our position in that statement uh, you quoted, we released it last summer, our position was to acknowledge that faculty are entitled to organize through unions, chapters and shared governance bodies to ensure that appropriate health and safety measures are enacted. It was really gratifying to see faculty organizing around workplace safety and I hope it continues. You know, organizing around conditions of employment is what will create better conditions of employment.
0: And from your own personal experiences, how has it been teaching? Are you teaching in person? Or are you teaching
1: um, remotely? I taught remotely last year. I'm back to in person uh, at my institution. We do not have a vaccine mandate, which is another thing I don't understand. Vaccines are mandated routinely with you know standard exemptions. Uh, we have our chapter has been really really strong in pushing the administration for better. Better protocols. A lot of faculty are with young children, or they have uh, elderly family members to care for, and it's a, it's a really serious concern. So, I just I'm just grateful that I, I, I stand by our statement that you know faculty should be organizing for their health and safety. They're the ones in the classrooms. They're the ones that should be um, making sure the conditions are safe. Earlier this year,
0: we released a special report on COVID-19 and academic governance that found governing boards and administrations use the pandemic as an excuse to put aside established academic governance processes and unilaterally close programs and lay off faculty members. That report gave some recommendations about how faculty can fight back against these incursions. Can you talk us through what a path forward looks like as faculty and institutions try to recover from the pandemic?
1: Sure. Sure. I am so proud of the work the association did in our special report on COVID-19 and academic governance. As you know, this was an unusual report in that it was a multi-institution report and focused on eight institutions, but it, was, it wasn't it was because there was a governance, you know, n- normally we investigate a single institution, but there were serious governance problems at these institutions, but these weren't the only ones. This was not just a governance problem an institution. Governance was under fire everywhere. And so we took on eight cases. And as the report said, the pandemic has created the most serious challenges to governance since the 1970s. There is no question that colleges and universities were in financial distress. And this financial distress is going to continue. But I think one important point this, this um, report made was to point out there were years of pre-existing financial conditions at these institutions. And so the question you have to ask is, were the governing boards and the administrations meeting their fiduciary responsibilities if they don't have plans, if if the finances are so uh, precarious that the pandemic sends them into free fall? Um, I really wonder if these governing boards were meeting their fiduciary responsibilities. Um, At a lot of these places, as the report pointed out, they just set aside institutional regulations. They, They pretty much threw governance out the window, which is outrageous. I mean, the whole point of institutional regulations and processes are to make things run smoothly. And there's no point of having those processes if you throw them out when they're most needed. Your question was really about a path forward. And I think the the, the report says, has has exactly the, the path forward, that there are gonna be challenges to institutions from the pandemic or new challenges that we face and robust shared governance is essential for the colleges to survive those challenges, keeping their core academic mission intact. And the report says, for this to happen, here's our path forward. Governing boards, administrations, and faculties must make a conscious, concerted, and sustained effort to ensure that all parties are conversant with and cultivate respect, for the norms of shared governance as articulated in our statement of government. So the path forward is strengthen shared governance now, demand that shared governance stay intact when there's a crisis. Let's turn to the subject of academic freedom and look at some recent
0: work on that front. Uh, We have the University of Florida where the AAUP recently got involved after the UF administration denied permission to three faculty members to provide expert testimony in a major voting rights case. In a statement at the time, you said the decision set a dangerous precedent by allowing partisan politics to impinge upon the right and duty of faculty to share expertise for the public good. Under pressure from the AUP and many others, the UF president called for the reversal of that decision and appointed a task force to investigate the university's conflict of interest policy. Can you talk a little bit about how these types of politically motivated attacks affect academic freedom and what
1: role the AAP serves in fighting back? Sure. I mean, what happened at the University of Florida was truly egregious. I mean, higher education serves the common good. And I can't think of any any better way to serve the common good than by encouraging academic experts to bring their expertise to the public when called upon. And so from all appearances, this was political intrusion into what should be the autonomous functioning of a public university um, in terms of, uh, you know, your the broader picture. And your question is there will always be attempts to interfere with scholarship and teaching when someone who wants to interfere and has the power to interfere sees an opening any outside interference or pressure into teaching or scholarship undermines academic work and is completely inappropriate in a free society. You know, as I said, powerful people will will intervene if they see an opening. That's what led to our founding 106 years ago. And these last 106 years have shown that our vigilance is essential and must be ongoing. This, what happened at the University of Florida is, you know, simply the latest example uh, that illustrates the need for the AAUP.
0: The AUP is investigating the University of Georgia system after the Board of Regents voted to adopt a post-tenure review policy that makes it possible to fire tenured faculty members without a dismissal hearing. Um, with this case and more broadly, can you just talk about why protecting
1: tenure is so important? Sure. So what happened in the University of Georgia system, it's the entire public, system, public university system in Georgia, 25 or 26 uh, institutions, it was very diabolical. The board of voted to de-link academic due process from their post-tenure review policy. So they have robust academic due process that comports with our standards, which is great. But by delinking it from this post-tenure review policy, they have essentially thrown tenure away and it's it's gone. It's because now a faculty member, you know, could under this post-tenure review policy could be dismissed without the requisite academic due process we require, which is a hearing before a faculty body uh, where the administration has to make the case for dismissal. By delinking academic due process, they have taken away academic due process from faculty who are gonna need it. And as a result, these faculty could be dismissed for reasons that have nothing to do with their professional fitness. They could be dismissed because they're a thorn in the administration's side, they could be dismissed because a board member doesn't like their research. Um, you know, so it's it's a it's a really serious attack. Not on, it's not tenure. It's not academic due process. It's academic freedom that we've lost here. And academic freedom is what's essential for higher education to serve the common good. I mean, that's what we lose sight of. The, the, the essential thing is academic freedom. Academic due process is there to pre- protect it. And and uh, tenure is there to protect academic freedom. In another case, AUP also created
0: a special committee to prepare a report on a pattern of egregious violations of principles of academic governance and persistent structural racism in the University of North Carolina system. Among several issues, the report will discuss is the widely publicized mishandling of the tenure case of New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones. In a statement about restricting teaching and race, the AUP said, when politicians mandate academic co- content that faculty can or cannot teach or the scholarly areas they can or cannot research or study, they prevent colleges and universities from fulfilling their missions. Teaching about race has been a flashpoint, and you've taken the lead in ensuring that the AUP has t- has taken a strong stance, protecting faculty rights, as well as advocating for more work to examine issues of structural racism in higher ed. Can you talk us through why we're doing this work now?
1: I mean, the time is always right for racial justice work. AAUP has been grappling with how to work towards racial equity in higher education for many years, and it was part of my platform when I ran for president in 2019. The urgency became crystal clear during the Black Lives Matter protests. The murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others at the hands of police made it impossible for white Americans to ignore these problems any longer. You can no longer look away and ignore. So um, at the AAUP, the racial justice initiative has has evolved as the leadership of our majority white organization is going through trainings that are designed to produce a permanent, organizational, cultural change, so that all of our work at AAUP is viewed through a racial equity lens. I mean, this is gonna be a very long process, probably a never ending process. We're just at the beginning of it now, but I'm optimistic and I intend to keep working for the rest of my life probably toward a more racially just AAUP and system of higher education. Teaching about race, as you mentioned, that's a flashpoint. That's just a small part of this. It's really about racial equity and it's moving towards a racially just society, which I, I really think is, is the work for all of us.
0: Let's talk about a plan for a new deal for higher education. The AUP has been working with the American Federation of Teachers and others, pushing for major changes in higher ed, including free college, forgiving student debt, greater racial equity, to name a few things. Not unexpectedly, progress has been slower than hoped. The latest version of the Build Back Better Act, which is due to be voted on in the Senate, does not include free college funding, as was promised by President Biden on the campaign trail. What are some of your takeaways about these developments? How do we stay on track to actually achieve major structural change in higher ed?
1: Well, my biggest takeaway is how exciting it is to work in coalition with the AFT and others on these on these matters and to get the AAUP back in the government relations sphere. Um, The the Build Back Better Act funds essential financial aid programs, but it doesn't have all the reforms we wanted You don't always get everything you want. The provisions in the original Build Build Back Better Act would have been a really fundamental and transformative reset to how public higher education is funded. Um, You know, during the Great Recession and for about four four decades, states have slashed fundings to colleges and universities. Administrators doubled down on their austerity plans. They've got chasing corporate sponsorship to make up for the lack of funding, Wall Street financing, and most the and the most serious concern is, you know, underpaid contingent workers are keeping the campus running. It's really completely unsustainable. So the new deal was launched to ensure stable and sustainable investment in our public institutions and their workers and to serve the the common good. We have work to do in convincing Congress of the existence of the contingency crisis. Congress is not gonna understand this unless we in the higher education profession educate them on the existence and the seriousness of the contingency crisis. And the funding crisis is plaguing our institutions. So we're, we're we'll be back at it. We're gonna keep working on this. We need the federal state partnership which would require states to maintain and increase their funding to all public colleges. So they can't just accept the federal money and slash their state funding. And this, this is going to, this would reverse the trend of state disinvestment. The aspects of the legislation that address public service loan forgiveness are going to be transformative when we make these happen. Um, So many students have been saddled with unsustainable student debt just to get an education to get ahead. And by um, canceling the student, the debt for people who have done public service um, will be really life changing for so many people. But we also want to cancel student debt for all the students because they have should- they have had to shoulder the cost of a degree unjustly. We didn't get everything we want, but we're going to continue fighting for it. And really the bottom line for us and for our partner, the AFT and our other coalition partners is to make higher education accessible and affordable for any student willing to do the work to get a degree.
0: Thank you very much for taking the time for the interview today. Um, and to end on a personal note, what does it mean to you as a longtime faculty member and faculty activist to be president of the AUP
1: in these pretty intense times? It's a, a, an honor, a privilege, a challenge. All my career, whenever I've worked with uh, fellow AUP members, that's quite frankly been part of the most rewarding parts of my career. I love the teaching. I love teaching, but somehow or other working with like-minded colleagues on AAUP matters, whether it's at the chapter level, at the state conference level, at the national level, as an elected leader, it's been the most part of the, it's been some of the most rewarding work of my career because I have seen us make a difference. And we are the people protecting this profession and this work with like-minded colleagues is just so, so rewarding.
0: Thanks to Irene for joining us today. You can find links to some of the topics we discussed in the show notes. And as ever, lots more information on our website, aup.org. Please check out our other podcasts in this series, AAUP Presents. They're all up on our website and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Mariah Quinn. Thanks for listening.